Why does a preacher get into politics? Well, in all honesty, it's the last thing most preachers want to do, but we've finally, uh, many of us, wake, uh, awakened to the fact that if we don't get involved, we're going to lose the country, or at least the, uh, the country that we love, a country with a moral foundation. Repeatedly, we have seen the whole nation turned on its heel by the stroke of the pen of one judge. Pastor Rick Scarborough isn't shy about using the pulpit to help give the president the power to appoint conservative judges. We've been winning elections and losing the war. I don't want a church to have a gay person come into their facility and then after they're given some food and water say, oh, by the way, you might want to read this Bible because you people caused this in the first place. Barry has made a tremendous leap of faith there. It is a fact that many, myself included, believe that that there's an element of judgment in a lot of these actions that are happening in the country right now. But the God I serve is a God of grace and love and mercy. And I don't know of a single evangelical preacher, this one included, who wouldn't reach out with open arms and love to any homosexual or any adulterer or anyone else for that matter and gladly love them and give them in the name of Christ whatever they need. All right. Now, the truth now, is Pastor... churches across the South have stepped up to the plate. Delay has said that his reception at this event caused him to consider stepping out of the race for his congressional seat. We'll uh, watch the introduction and then be back with Mr. Scarborough. Thank you, Rick. Uh, Rick is such a dear friend, and he's right. Uh, we've worked very closely together. I am so proud of what he's doing with Vision America, how he left one of the fastest-growing, biggest churches in my district to do this because God called him to do it. And... Um, uh, and he is he's he's done such a fabulous job in in waking up Christians to politics uh, we're seeing a, a clear illustration of why the president's polling numbers are going down the folks that mobilized the people I'm closest to were mobilized because of stump speeches that said I'm gonna stop judicial tyranny and I'm gonna work to make sure that marriage is protected Congressmen like Congressman Shays and others who are dragging this president back to the center are literally destroying his presidency. His numbers will jump to 40% or 50% tomorrow if he engages on the social issues that he ran for the presidency on. To realize the seriousness of the hour, it is not the left that is wrecking the country. It is the Christian who is doing nothing. Pastor Rick Scarborough is on a crusade across America. For a Christian not to vote is a sin. He's traveling the country holding church rallies from now until Election Day 2008. Here's the danger you need to see. Like many of his Christian counterparts, he believes America has lost its moral footing. Christians don't lose until they quit. And his mission is to raise an army of Christian voters to fix that. And evangelical Christians are estimated between 50 and 80 million. We are the largest voting bloc in America. If 75% of them vote their values, we win. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a Christocrat. Well, amen. What a privilege to be here today. I, I want to congratulate all of you who sacrificed to be in this 11 o'clock worship hour. You're the ones that have to wait long lines for, for the early crowd to get out of the way so you can eat. But I just want to witness that this is when the Bible says you're supposed to go to church. Uh, in the RSV, it says, Thou shalt worship at 11 o'clock. That's the Rick Scarborough version. 
and so happy to uh, be with you. I uh, have looked forward to getting to know your pastor. Knew him by reputation as a man who is a man after God's own heart. And uh, what I like about him is he's a man of courage. Uh, most of you are aware that a couple of weeks ago, uh, he videotaped a sermon where he defied uh, what I believe to be an illicit and ungodly uh, law passed as an amendment to an appropriations bill in 1954 that literally changed the direction of this whole country by putting fear among our preachers, at least among those who fear man more than God. Clearly, uh, Pastor John is not that kind of a pastor, and I like to be around men like that. About 1,500 preachers uh, across America stood up, preached with freedom what they believe about issues in this election cycle. Uh, By the way, you do know that preachers have free speech rights, don't you? Uh, I mean, the the Constitution has not been repealed, regardless of what Barry Lynn and people like that say. You're not aware of this. Your pastor may have gotten the letter, but the gentleman I was debating on, who calls himself the Reverend Barry Lynn, he's no more a preacher than I am a lawyer. He is an ACLU lawyer. He's on the executive board of the American Civil Liberties Union. Somewhere in a strategy session, they decided what we need is somebody on the inside telling preachers what they can and cannot do. So... He went to the most liberal denomination in America, the United Churches of Christ, who gave us such pastors as Jeremiah Wright, and there he was credentialed to be a preacher. And now he refers himself as the Reverend Barry Lynn. He and I debated at the University of Texas several years ago. First thing I did was say, you're not a preacher any more than I'm a lawyer. And uh, he really has nothing to say. But his organization, well-funded, writes hundreds of thousands of letters and sends them to preachers across America every election cycle and and says to them, if you so much as pass out a voter's guide, you will be in jeopardy of losing your 501c3. And many preachers quake in their boots, and that's the end of it. They're getting the desired result. You want to know how many churches have lost their 501c3 in the history of America? Well, actually, that's true, but it's... The truth is, one did lose it. The Prairie Creek Church in Prairie Creek, New York, took out a full-page ad back in 1996 and basically said, a full-page ad in USA Today, that if you vote for Bill Clinton, you're committing sin. And they lost their C3. They litigated it before the courts, got it right back, and that was that. But beyond that, had they lost it, it wouldn't have meant a thing. Your pastor, I'm sure, has educated you on this. Uh, churches like Thomas Road Baptist Church, where, where uh, Jerry Falwell was pastor for 35 plus years, and until this day, under his son's ministry, has never had a 501c3, and yet every dollar of the more than billion dollars that's been contributed to that church in its history was tax-exempt because our founders believed the Bible. They took a passage in Ezra chapter 7, and saw a principle that they incorporated into our Constitution. It was Ezra who came behind the the politician, Nehemiah, who rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And then Ezra said to those people that you politicians, you in authority, have no right to tax the singers, the preachers, the workers in the temple because they are under God and you can't tax what they do. And our founders said there's a principle we need to incorporate in this new republic. Uh, We'll let everybody choose the preacher and the church they want to attend. 
And whatever they give to that church will be exempt from all federal income taxes. And that way the government cannot tell the church what to do. And it worked until 1954 when our own senator, he was running for the Senate. He was at that time in the House of Representatives. But Lyndon Baines Johnson was running and a group of people led by Bunker Hunt took out a 501c3, used tax-exempt money to tell the whole state what a scoundrel the guy was. And when he got elected, he then turned around and, and passed a rider on an appropriations bill, never debated according to the congressional record. And for the first time in American history, not only were the 501c3 organizations like Vision America, but every church that had a C3 restricted from saying anything political. Now we have an environment where everything is politicized. If we preach what we believe about traditional marriage, that's political. If we preach what we believe about life, that's political. If we preach what we believe about robbing from future generations and giving it away, borrowing from the Chinese and the Japanese and handing it out to our cronies, that's considered political. Well, let me tell you something, folks. When they get through with us, if we let this to go forward, we won't have a Bible left to preach. So by God's grace, 1,500 of the 350,000 preachers in America were courageous enough to do what your pastor did. And that stand up and say, I ain't taking this anymore. To God be the glory. And I commend you, pastor. I, I, I thank God for the, for, the, for the Jesus that's in operation through you. And boy, I'll tell you what, folks. You ought to love and pray for this preacher because he put a target on his back when he did that. I think after having been around him for two days, he can handle it. Amen? Now, let's, let's think about it. Now, I, they told me there's a trap door up here, and if I'm not through by 12 o'clock, I will disappear. So I want you to listen very quickly. I am going to preach to you right out of the Scripture. <clears throat> By the way, I used to always say, turn in your Bibles. Now I say, turn or click. I, I carry an iPad. I've got, when I go to a church, everybody uses a different translation. I've got them all, thank the Lord. I, you know, some things uh, uh, Jobs thought about turned out to be a pretty good idea. He, he died wrong. He, by the way, he changed his mind here short, just a short while ago about things like life and marriage. When he stood before Jesus, he got it all straightened out. Don't wait that long, folks. But uh, we're going to be reading in just a little while, uh, or at least I'll be preaching from Acts chapter 16. I, I will quote some of the verses there, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, that's where you'll need to be. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 9 and following. But I want to first of all tell you a, a story. The Lord Jesus called me right out of seminary to go into full-time itinerant evangelism. And so for 14 years, from 72 all the way up until 88, my wife and I and our three children participated in the ministry of evangelism going from church to church across America and around the world for that matter, preaching revivals and crusades of all, in churches of all sizes, crusades outdoors, crusades indoors, uh, in some cases to tens of thousands, primarily overseas in those bigger crusades. But you know, after a while, life got complicated, kids got older, and sports became a, a, a real uh, uh, desire for them. And so we began praying, Lord, is there a local church where we could take all these theories we've developed, watching other pastors, and put them into practice, see if they work. As the Lord would have it, in 1990, 
First Baptist Church of Pearland, Texas came open and they showed an interest in Rick Scarborough. We uh, prayed about it as a family and can you move just a little out? You're blocking that timepiece. That may be God's ordained gift to me so that I preach forever, but I do want to be sensitive about the time and I need to move this along at certain intervals. You know, when you travel from place to place, you get to preach the same sermon over. But you pray it's always fresh. And so I'm going to share with you a story that I've told many times, but I pray God makes it fresh. When you go to the doctor, if you have pneumonia, he'll give you the same drug every time. Amen? Because you need the same medicine. Well, churches all over today need this medicine that God's put in my heart as a passion to share. But we began praying. God opened the door, and I went to First Baptist Pearland. And it was glorious. God so affirmed that. During the first 18 months, we saw more than 500 people baptized into that church. By anybody's uh, uh, analysis, that's a time of abundance when God is blessing. The miraculous part was, was the following. Now, this was a Baptist church. Uh, Baptists only vote unanimously when they hire you and when they fire you. But because we'd grown so much and because the, the, the facilities were isolated on a three-and-a-half-acre piece of land surrounded by a four-lane highway, a railroad track, and a subdivision, we realized we've got to do something to maintain this growth to just accommodate the crowds. And so we put it up for a vote, and a unanimous vote came back that we should look for property, raise the money, and relocate the church. That, in itself, was a miracle. We were moving forward. We had a fund set up. We were doing things to raise the money in advance. We were full-fledged focused on growing that church. When one day a lady walked out and said, uh, rather than the usual casual uh, exchange, she said, Pastor, are you going to the high school assembly tomorrow? Well, I hated to admit it, but I didn't know there was one. Two of our kids were in the high school. So when I inquired, I found out, hey, this... uh, sounds suspicious. Uh, I need to cover it. Well, I learned early in ministry that if I didn't plan my day, somebody else would. So I had a whole day of activities already scheduled on my daytimer, and I just didn't see any way I could go to that assembly. But Rod Compton, who was with me for 13 years in two churches and became like a right hand to me, said he would cover that assignment for me. I used to brag to my preacher friends, I was just like Uh, Moses, I leaned on my rod and my staff because Rod was the staff. So Rod went, and he went to that high school assembly. My wife will share with you uh, Rod, whom we saw just last week over in New Mexico where he's pastoring now. He's a throwback to preachers 100 years ago. Rod can still not say pregnant in mixed company. He'll say in a mothering way. He, He doesn't go to movies. He's very careful what he allows his eyes to behold. Oh, that we all could be such pure hearts. But when he came back from that high school assembly, he was just scandalized. He, he, he kept saying, preacher, you won't believe it. I said, well, Rod, we're adults. Tell us what you heard. It became very obvious after about the third exchange, he was not going to tell us what he heard. I had with me a prospective staff member that I was showing around and talking about a position on our staff. So I asked Rod to take the gentleman to lunch, and I scurried down to the fifth of the five high school assemblies. I sat down in the back of the auditorium. I was a little bit late. And wouldn't you know it, our daughter, whom whom we moved uh, into that community 18 months previous as a junior in high school, was seated about halfway up. When we moved, Misty was convinced that it wasn't God's will. I mean, what high school student in the middle of her junior year wants to be uprooted and move? 
So we loved on her and we convinced her this was something God wanted. And frankly, she was doing well. But the first thought I had was, don't embarrass Misty. Just listen. Uh, there'll be a time and a place if there's something you need to address. And after all, I brought a pocket recorder, a dictaphone, uh, back in those old days, that I could get 30 minutes of, of, of the speech on. So I set it on the desk, and I put the, pressed the play button, and I began to listen. The more the young lady spoke, the angrier I got. First as a father, and secondly as a pastor. But I kept saying, don't embarrass your daughter. Don't say anything. Uh, you don't even have permission to be here. Just keep your mouth shut, Scarborough. And I did very well for about 25 minutes. I even made, I managed not to explode when she told those students, including my daughter, that the type of sex that our former president Clinton had in the Oval Office was the safest form there was because you couldn't get pregnant. You know, folks, I, I felt like uh, that I was a pretty well-informed guy. As a pastor, I tried to stay on the cutting edge of societal evolution. And I, uh, you know, I thought back, when, when they talk about sex education, I thought, well, we had that when I was in junior high school. In fact, on a given day, they took all the boys in the boys' gym, all the girls in the girls' gym, they blackened the windows with tar paper, they turned the lights off and turned on a 16-millimeter projection system. Uh, parents, you'll have to tell your kids what that is. But they turned on the projection system and showed us images of people with gonorrhea, syphilis, and other sexually transmitted diseases. When the lights came back on, we were so terrified, it took us two years of married life to get over it. They basically said, if you do this, you'll get that. You know, there was never a day in my entire teenage life that I wanted my nose to rot off, that I wanted to go blind or lose my mind. I just never wanted to do those things. And when they showed us what happened, uh, it worked. It restrained the boys. It stopped the girls. In those days, teenagers, there were a handful of girls in the high school who did, and we all knew who they were, and we whispered their names. Today, parents, there's a handful of girls who don't. People whisper their names and laugh. My, how we've changed. God, what we've lost. In my generation, folks, just to illustrate the point, we've gone from my three sons to two and a half men. From my little Marjorie to Lady Gaga. From Father Knows Best to the Big Bang Theory. From Leave It to Beaver to Beavis and Behindhead. From True Grit to Brokeback Mountain. My wife told me, Pastor, I was frothing at the mouth. The last time she said, do this. How do I look, honey? Tommy, stand up. This, we've been married 42 years, soon to be 43. I want you to see my wife. She is the love of my life. Now, I met your pastor's wife last night, and I realized that you know, one thing God does with those of us who get out there on the front line is He blesses us with beautiful, sane women to go home to. I saw that He married over His head just like I did. But I, I, it's important. I, I may, you know, I'm all the time in, in the presence of pastors 
I'll call up and say, Tommy, I love you, sweetheart, and hang up. And I realize a lot of these guys, I, I think later, they don't know my wife's name is Tommy. What do they think? My daughter Misty is one of my two assistants, and I often, you know, threw a kiss over the phone after telling her all the things that need to be done. And I think about, you know, a day later, I wonder what they think's going on with me and my, my assistant. My assistant's my daughter, and my wife's name is Tommy. I mean, I, there's a lot of potential for, for personal damage. We've gone from Fred Astaire to Dirty Dancing. We've gone from, from a Frank Sinatra to Gangster Rap. But now let's look for a moment at our schools. Once the envy of the world, we now have dropout rates in our major cities approaching 70 and 80 percent. I recently read that in cities like Chicago, from the, from the, the day they start in preschool till the time they graduate, only like 3 percent go to college. We want to know uh, why we've come to the place where choices can be made that so defy logic. Have you seen some of the, the uh, man-on-the-street interviews that the comedians and others are doing now? And you look and you do laugh, but those people are choosing presidents. They're making decisions that shape our future. Democracy, a, a democratic republic, which is what we have, was designed for an educated people. And it will not work any other way. There has been a concerted effort to take over our schools and inject philosophy instead of education so that masses of people could be manipulated. And beloved, guess what? We're there. When you gray hairs like me die, the generation that takes your place will be a generation that never knew in America where abortion was illegal, never knew in America where Bibles were read in schools, never knew in America where people actually prayed before a classroom day began, who believe that abortion is normal and that same sex is just a part of life. Same-sex marriage, which is not a marriage. God, before the church, instituted one man and one woman. This is an offense to God. And to think that this country, blessed of God, founded in His mind before ours, will continue without His judgment, is insane. We're at a crossroads right now. And we're going to determine in the next 16 or 17 days whether we're going to start the road to recovery or crash over the cliff and be destroyed. You want to know who I'm going to vote for? I'll be glad to tell you, by the way. Pastor, I used to stand at... I'd say, I'm going to stand at that door today. And if you want to know what, who I'm going to vote for, I'll give you the whole list. And people would lie. They want to know what you believe because they know you're a man of God and after God's heart. And that's why... Those few with lots of money are doing everything they can to silence men like you. Um, in our schools today, prayers out, cops are in. Ten commandments came down, metal detectors went up, and bars on windows, and guards walking with sniffing dogs. 
Creationism is out. Evolution is in. The fact of God is taught us theory. Well, the theory of evolution is taught us fact. When is that going to change? When enough people stand up and say, as I have done, enough is enough. You know, in 1996, our church was making, was moving forward. I'd been reading, and after that epiphany that I had with that high school assembly, by the way, I spoke to the school board a week later. 600 people showed up. They had to move it four times to accommodate the crowd. They, had the, they, they went into an auditorium finally, and they put the seven school board members up on the platform, looking down on all of us uh, lower class because they were in charge, and they were angry. Especially at me, because I had caused this, what became a national media circus. They were angry. Uh, they, had me, they gave me five minutes to speak. I prayed and fasted before that event. And the only thing God said to me was, a soft word turns away wrath. And so I never raised my voice, and I, I wrote and read my planned remarks. Five-minute sermon's a lot harder than an hour. You know, what I didn't uh, anticipate and what they didn't understand or expect was how many times the crowd would stand up and applaud my remarks. You know what I learned that day? I learned something I never forgot. Politicians can count. When they saw where the tide of public opinion was, they started changing. And in all honesty, I discovered that day those seven board members weren't my enemy. They were better citizens than I they had run for public office that didn't pay a dime, spent thousands of their own dollars, and served hours upon hours to try to run our schools. The only time they heard from the church is when we got mad. And by the way, when they found out the content of that assembly, they had hired a principal and trusted him. When they heard what their kids had been taught from me with the facts, I found that they were as mad as I was. They had lined up another preacher because they thought they knew what I was going to say. They thought I was going to be a fundamaniac against all sex education. I'm just against lying to kids, telling them condoms will save them. This other preacher was pastor of all things, Casey Jones. That really was his name. I expected him to drive a train to work every day. He had been in that community about 10 years before I got there. He's still pastoring the First Presbyterian Church. Casey also spoke that day to the school board. He came loaded for bear. Of course, the straw man he'd built up in his mind of what he thought I was going to say was all uh, wrong. And so what he said almost sounded crazy in the port, but he stood his ground. He came to office about a week later at my invitation. And I said, Casey, do you know what you defended at that, at that school board meeting in front of the whole community? He said, well, I, I, I just believe that we ought to trust our educators and our kids need to be trained and, and taught about sex education. I said, Casey, do you know what you defended? Well, yeah, I, I think. So I gave him the 13 or the 12-page transcript, transcript that I had read to our church the Sunday before. Well, that was a day. He started reading it, and he, as he would turn the pages, Pastor, you could see tears well up in his eyes. And he would just say, oh, my, you don't mean it. And by the time he finished, he said to me, I had no idea. I said, the problem is, though, Casey, you and I are publicly at odds, the Baptist preacher, the Presbyterian preacher, and you have stood for something you don't even believe in. 
He's walked out of my office sullen. About four days later, he called me up. He wrote a column every week in our local paper. He said, have you seen my column in the Pearland Journal today? I said, well, well no. By the way, Pearland's a suburb of Houston. It just had its own uh, school system and police force, etc. He called me up and he said, have you read my article today? I said, well, no. He said, get it. I went and got the, a copy immediately. And on, in his one-page article in that 12 or 13-page journal, he publicly repented of withstanding the Baptist pastor, asked my church and my forgiveness and the community's forgiveness. Then he called me up, or I called him immediately, told him how courageous and how I admired him. He said, can I bring some elders and come to your church Sunday night? I said, well, sure, Casey. I had no idea what he was going to do. I figured he was going to say something to the church. I could have never prepared for what he did. He put a chair right in the middle of the platform. He then came up with his elders, and they took my shoes and my socks off, and he washed my feet as he asked my forgiveness. And I'm telling you, revival came to Pearland as a result of that experience. Now, here's what I want you to understand today. The last thing I, I had time for, and the last thing I would have scheduled trying to raise money for a new building, was a was citywide and what became a nationwide confrontation with the local school system. But hear me carefully, church family. There comes a time in every Christian's life. You never know when it's going to happen, and it won't be a convenient time when it does. But you're going to be confronted with evil, and you're going to hear the witness of the Holy Spirit say, Okay, hotshot, you talk a good game. Whose team are you really on? When I spoke out in that high school assembly, I wasn't sure my daughter would endure it. I thought she might be so humiliated she would rebel. You know what she did? She came across the auditorium, threw her arms around my neck, and kissed me on the cheek in front of the whole, the whole school assembly and said, Daddy, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. That was, saying like, that was like saying, sick it to a cur dog. I didn't know how the deacon body and the leadership of our church, many of whom were employed by the school system, would respond to it. They rose about 95% in support of their pastor. You notice I didn't say 100%. 5% can create a lot of heartache. But more importantly, I sensed God's affirmation. And I saw God begin to work through our church, through our community, in much more important ways than building buildings. It took us 10 years to get that building built. It was built. But we then began the process of trying to see what God wanted to do in our community. Before long, we had four of our members out of, out of seven on the school board change the direction of the school. Three of our members out of five on the city council changed the direction of our city council. You know, those elections in the early days were easy to win because nobody shows up for those downline races. Then some money people came along and said, Hey, preacher, could you do this in Harris County, the county surrounding Houston, the largest county population-wise in Texas? I said, Well, depends on the preachers. Over 12 months, we had a series of lunches and dinners we lined up 400 pastors who agreed to do four things which your church does. Register people to vote. Can't vote if you're not registered. Put in their hands voter guides. The only thing worse than not voting is voting wrong. Number three, 
Preach one sermon on why we should vote, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as followers of Jesus Christ. Number four, lead them personally to the polls. They do what we do more than what we say. And you know what happened in 1994 in Harris County? 51 pro-choice, ungodly, unprincipled in many cases, men and women, were thrown out and replaced by God-fearing men and women because the church showed up. Then some men, then I wrote a book called Enough is Enough. In 1996, the original version of this had nine chapters in it. All taken from Isaiah chapter 3, the nine signs of a nation in decline. In Isaiah chapter 3, it talks about babes shall rule over them. You know what a babe is? Like that child here a moment ago. A, A babe is someone who hasn't lived long enough to shape their own values. They mimic behavior. That's who we have leading us today in this country. Men with no core and women with no core values. In one crowd, they seem like saints. In another crowd, they'll sell their soul. Another sign in Isaiah chapter 3 of a nation in decline is that the Bible says they declare their sin as Sodom and hide it not. Woe to their souls. Gays, homosexuals coming out of the closet. Another sign is men shall look at the brother of their house and say, you be our ruler. Put this ruler on your hand. But he'll respond by saying, don't make me a leader of the people. I'm too busy. Apathy. Another sign is women shall rule over them. Radical feminism. It's all right there. I talked about it. I preached about it. But I never got around to the book. One day, the leadership of my church walked in and said, Preacher, we've already lined up staff members to preach. You're out of here for one month. Go write the book. So I went off and I prayed and I fasted and I wrote 350 pages longhand that became a 252-page book called Enough is Enough. And I laid out all these things, taking them all the way to Isaiah 5, 5, where God said to Jerusalem and Judah, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pull down the hedge and you will be destroyed. That's right where America stood in 1996. Remember Bill Clinton? Remember impeachment? Remember this country turning to him again anyway? In 2008, Steve Strang, Charisma Magazine, got a hold of the original version. He said, Preacher, if you'll take the time to rewrite it, I'll pay you to do it. I didn't know you could get paid for a book. I'd always self-published. He paid me a contract. I went through all those nine signs and wrote what's now the new version. They wanted to keep the title the same. You know what I discovered? In 12 years of personal activism, going across this country saying we've got to save America... Every single thing was worse, not better. You see, Satan never gives back that which he's stolen. He has stolen much from us because we've been sleeping through the battle. We lose because we don't show up. 50% of the church is not even registered to vote. Of the 50% who are, about about 40% of those don't show up and vote, even though they're registered. If you look at the total numbers, about... 70% of the church is not participating. Did you know just this week they released a new statistic based on on a a study of our population? Only 4.5% of the population is homosexual. It may have been 3.5. That's 3.4. All right, forgive me. I thought that sounded high. 
3.4% are homosexual. About 40% are born again by their own testimony, Christian. Guess who's running the country? And I say to you, it's time for that to change. Now, beloved, I didn't come here to turn you into a political machine. When Paul and Silas went to Philippi, they weren't politically driven. They were on a mission from God. They were sent there to win souls. They weren't politically correct. They saw a demon-possessed person, that, a woman who was, making, who, was, who was making a profit for her owners, and they called it demon possession and cast the devil out and led her to Christ. They weren't politically connected. For that act of mercy, they were beaten almost to death. They weren't politically dependent. When they got into prison, they didn't call a lawyer. They cried out to God. And when the magistrates came to their senses after the earthquake and said, hey, let's get them out of town. When they acted like politicians trying to sweep it under the carpet, Paul showed he wasn't politically ignorant either. He stood up and said, my mission here was to win souls. My allegiance is to Jesus. My first citizenship is in heaven. But, for, God, for, for some reason, God saved me under Pax Romana. I have a Roman citizenship which was granted to me by the blood of soldiers who fought for it. And he said, I'm not going to let this pass. You tell those magistrates, they can come down here and kill me if they want to, but I'm not leaving until they redress my grievance. And based on his statement of being a Roman citizen, he was enabled to go back into Philippi, strengthen that new church, it was the only church that stood with him all the way to the day he was finally executed for his faith. Why did God save you? The only answer to that is grace. Why did God save you in America? Because he wanted you to be a light to the world. Why did God give you the gift of freedom? Because he wanted you to live within it, operate fully in it, and then hand it to your children. And yet my generation is the first generation in all of the history of America to give their next generation less than we got. And within another 10 years, you will see preachers rounded up and thrown into, into prison for preaching that sodomy is a sin if we don't begin now to assert our rights and stand up for Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? You know, folks, I'm on a mission appointed by God to find the remnant and help them understand how important it is that the church stand up and be counted. But if I were blessed of God to be successful in turning the whole tide, and we certainly started seeing Christians appointed to every high office, and we suddenly started seeing a reformation in the country, for which I pray. And yet you died and went to hell. It would profit you nothing. You see, the bottom line is the way you save a country is by saving the citizens. And I'm not so foolish as to believe that everybody that came to Church on the Rock today came saved. You see, in this room, there are only two kinds of people, saved, lost. On the road to heaven, on the road to hell. And the question I have for you today is, which road are you traveling? There are some of you in this room that can say joyfully, Preacher, I'm not perfect. I don't claim it. But I know this. I know I'm saved. I remember when God changed me. I have no doubt about it. I know I'm going to heaven. 
And I rejoice to know that. If you're one of those, would you raise your hand as a testimony? I know I'm saved. Oh, listen, beloved, isn't that joyful to think about? But you know something? A lot of people couldn't raise their hand just then. So I'm going to ask you to lower yours. And if you're one of those who would say, Preacher, when you talk about knowing that you know that you know Jesus, when you talk about talking with certainty that you know you're saved, I can't say that. But you'd be honest enough and humble enough to say, Preacher, would you pray for me? I can't say that I know Jesus. Would you pray for me? Beloved, I promise I won't embarrass you. I'm asking every head to be bowed so there's privacy. The Bible says, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching this, you'll ask, it will be done of our fathers in heaven. If you want to know, I'm going to agree with you today. I want to pray for you first. How many of you in this room say, preacher, I'm not sure that if I died, I'd go to heaven. Please pray for me. If that speaks to where you are spiritually, would you raise your hand right now? Would you raise it high so I can see where you are and pray for you? Thank you and you and you. Adults, how about it, teenagers? Thank you. You made it up and just back down. Thank you. You may put it down so I can see a number of people. Anyone else? Preacher, I just can't say if I died, I know I'd go to heaven. I'd like to know that, but I don't know that. Pray for me. Anyone else? Young or old? Anybody else? I want all of you to just ask me to pray for you while everybody else's head is bowed. You ask me to pray for you. Before I do, I want to look you eyeball to eyeball. Look at me, if you will. The only ones looking are those who ask for prayer. Here's what I want you to know. If I could come to every one of you and answer every question you've got, God knows my heart, I'd do that. In a setting like that, that's impossible. But there's someone here who can. His name is Jesus. The Holy Spirit is right there with you. The fact that you're asking for help, the fact that you raise your hand is, is proof to me the Holy Spirit is operational in your life. And He's wanting to save you. Here's what He wants you to know. Four things. God loves you. He loves you so much. In fact, He loves you so much, had no one ever lived but you, He'd have still sent His Son Jesus to die for you. That's how much He loves you. Number two, He wants you to know this. There's something about you He hates. And it's called sin. And the reason God hates it is because sin always separates it separates husband from wife. It separates children from parents. But most damaging, it separates the sinner from God. Here's the third thing he wants you to know. That's the reason Jesus went to Calvary, so that your sin could be removed. That's the reason when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? He did, because in that moment, your sin was put on him. But here's the fourth thing, and here's the vital thing. You can know that God loves you. And still die and go to hell. You can know that you're a sinner and still die and go to hell. You can even know Jesus died for you and still die and go to hell. You see, the fourth thing is this. Every person at some point in their life has to finally declare and choose Jesus as their personal Savior. I can't do that for you. Husband can't do it for wife or vice versa. Nobody can do that for you but you. And that's why now I'm going to give you an invitation to do it. Would you bow your head and let me pray for you and then with you? Lord Jesus, thank you that all across this auditorium, men and women are just getting real. They're getting down to the reality. And I see faces that reveal to me they really want to know you. Well, Lord, I know you want to know them. So, Lord, I ask you to speak to the hearts of these who've asked me to pray for them. And I ask you, Lord, to make it easier for them to say yes to Jesus than to say no. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're one of those who want to know for sure, 
you're tired of pretending or wondering, pray this prayer softly after me. Make it your own. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Pray that. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done many things that were wrong. And I'm sorry. I believe you died on the cross of Calvary to save sinners like me. Today, Lord Jesus, I believe you especially died just for me. So come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Wash away my sin by your blood and give me the gift of eternal life. Now help me never to be ashamed. Pray that. Never to be ashamed. Thank you for saving me today. In your name I pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You just prayed those words with me as best you know how you meant it. Would you raise your hand right now while no one looks at me? Raise them high because I'm going to count you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. That's right, fourteen. Anybody else? Fourteen people that I see. Fifteen. Here's what I want you to do if you're one of those fifteen. I did that only so you know you weren't alone. Our pastors are going to stand here at the front along with trained counselors. I want you to get up before anybody else right now and make your way down to the front and take them by the hand and say, Preacher, no more playing the game. I gave my heart to Jesus today. We're not going to stand until people start coming. Preacher, that's hard. You bet it is. It was hard for Jesus to die on the cross. But he did it. The Bible says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So I'm waiting for the first one. If you prayed, get up where you're seated. Come stand right here with me and this pastor. Pastor, would you stand here to receive them? When one person comes, then we'll all stand so others can come. God love you. God love you. Come on. Come on. And this is too important to say no. Give your heart to Jesus. This is the day. This is the day. Let's all stand and start singing while others are coming. Come to the front. Come to the front. Give your heart to Jesus. Praise the Lord. We're going to sing a song. Our prayer team is going to come down. Anyone making a step to Christ, you come on. We don't want a thing from you. We want to give you something to help you in the next step. Because the Christian life is not like going to a movie and when it's over, it's over. The Christian life is where you start committing your life and then you live it out all your days. And we want to give you something. Our prayer team is going to come right now. I want a counselor with all these folks that are standing at the altar. And we want to say we're very happy for you and proud of you. Give them another hand today. We're very happy you. Very happy for you. Very proud of you. Every step to God is the right step. Every step to God is the right step. Didn't Brother Rick Scarborough do a great job? Give him a big hand. We appreciated him being here. Lord willing, next week I'll be in the pulpit, and I promise you you'll have enough Bible verses you won't be able to keep up with me. But I asked him to come because I wanted you to hear a story, not just of a preacher, but of a Christian who confronted something in society that was wrong and had the courage to stand up. Because that's the application for you and I today. When I confront what's going on in the world, I don't want to just get mad at the television and throw something at it. I want God to be able to use me, come on, as salt and light in my world. And that's what I hope you take. Because as he said, he was not expecting that conversation in the high school gymnasium that day. He was not expecting that that would change his life. But when the opportunity was there, he stepped up to the plate. And how many know eternity will bear the difference?
Listen, we're going to sing this through one time. Pastor Travis is going to have a closing prayer, and I'll meet you at the back door. But don't forget, if you're from Arkansas, get one of those voter guides. Take it home and study it. Stop at his book table. And let me ask you to do this as well, if your heart's as mine is. Whenever we have a guest pastor that comes, which, by the way, he's speaking. Pastor Rick, is he already gone? He's, I think he's pre, in the next 10 days, he's going to be in 14 different places in four different states trying to call people to stand for truth in America. But he's a man of God. If you want to give a love offering towards him, I'll leave my Bible up front, put something on it, or at the back door, there'll be, there'll be some ushers. If you don't feel like it, no problem, but we love to bless those that bless us. I love you, and Pastor Travis will have the closing prayer.